Listen to me, all my people. Heaven is my throne, and all the earth is my footstool. I'm the head of all the nations. Don't you live in fear of anyone? Cause I still rule. Cause I'm the king of kings. And I'm the Lord of Lords. Yeah, I'm the King of Kings. And I'm the Lord of Lords. Ah, listen to me, all my people. Don't you let your hearts be troubled, but believe in me. I'm the head and you're the body. Soon you'll be my bride. For I will come to set you free Yes, I'm the King of Kings And I'm the Lord of Lords Yeah, I'm the King of Kings And I'm the Lord of Lords Every knee shall bow to me Every tongue will come My enemies shall fall by the word from my mouth. That is my sword. I've got children sing for joy. I've got children sing for joy. I've got children sing. Children sing for joy Cause I'm the King of Kings And I'm the Lord of Lords Yeah, I'm the King of Kings And I'm the Lord of Lords Every knee shall bow to me Every tongue will confess That I am Lord my enemies shall fall by the word from my mouth. That is my sword. I've got children sing for joy. I've got children sing for joy. I've got children sing for All right, uh, good evening. Can you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 15? Go to verse 5. Romans chapter 15, verse 5. Okay. All right, let's take a moment of silent prayer as we, before we get underway. Remember, we take this moment of silent prayer where we bow our heads and we close our eyes so we can have privacy so that we can apply 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. It says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins with the result that He purifies us from 
uh, all wrongdoing, and uh, that includes not that includes also the sins that we don't know that we commit due to ignorance of the Word of God. That restores us to fellowship, and we're restored to fellowship uh, based upon the merits of Jesus Christ and His death on the cross, just like we're saved on the merits of Jesus Christ, and we enter into an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ through faith in Him. So in the same way, when we confess our sins based upon the merits of Christ and who He is and what He did for us at the cross, the Father restores us to fellowship. And fellowship is, a, is an offshoot of our eternal relationship with God. Remember, fellowship is dynamic. It can change due to sin, but be restored to, through the confession of sin. And our eternal relationship with God is, is static. It never changes. Just like in the Wenstrom family, when I was a kid, I, uh, I'm in the Wenstrom family, but if I disobeyed my parents, I was out of fellowship, but I was still in the Wenstrom family. And uh, once I confessed the sin and did what I was supposed to do, then I was restored to fellowship. I could have dinner with them. So in the same way in God's family, he operates pretty much the same, similar uh, way in the sense that uh, we're still in the family of God when we sin as believers. However, we're out of fellowship. So that's the importance of 1 John 1.9. We maintain that fellowship once we've been restored through the confession of sin. We maintain that fellowship by bringing our thoughts into obedience what the Spirit says to us. And he teaches us through the teaching of the Word of God. He's inspired the Scriptures, and He makes the Scriptures real and understandable to us. So when we're obeying the Word of God, we're actually obeying the Holy Spirit. And when we're obeying the Holy Spirit, we're obeying the Word of God. So this is an important time. If there's anything that's disturbing or distracting to you, do it first. John, First uh, Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So in the privacy of our very own royal priesthood, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to gather together with other members of the royal family of God to study your word. We thank you for the Bible, the completed canon of scripture, and the gift of the Holy Spirit to make your word real and understandable to us. We thank you for placing us in union with your Son, Jesus Christ, and through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, identifying us with your Son in his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection and session at your right hand. So now, Father, because of what you've done for us through your Son and the Spirit, we have victory over the sin nature that indwells our bodies and also over the devil and his cosmic system. And we have the victory through your Son and the work of the Holy Spirit in appropriating the work of your Son. So we just thank you, Father, for this position in Christ that you view us as you view your Son, crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with your Son. And so through the Holy Spirit, we pray that he would give us illumination, understanding into this great power and love that has been directed toward us to help us see, Father, that we can have confidence in life, confidence that you have blessed us in the past, confident that you'll be blessing us here right now in the present and are, and will bless us in the future with a resurrection body and rewards if we're faithful. We just thank you, Father, for gracing us out and treating us in a manner that we don't deserve. And we pray, Father, that for our congregation, that all of us would continue to grow in love toward you and each other. We pray that you would give our leadership of our ministry wisdom in leading this church, so that we can minister to your people and bring glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for them. And also we thank you for those who have been faithful giving their time, talent, and treasure in praying for this ministry. And we also pray for those not only in this geographical region, but also those who consider this their local assembly that are part, uh, part of our extended congregation that follow the teaching on the internet in Pound Talk. And we pray for all of them, that all of them would continue to be... Uh, uh, that the Holy Spirit, would, through the pages of Scripture, would continue to make real to them their marriage to Jesus Christ, your Son. And we also pray this evening that the audience would have objectivity and humility, that the Spirit would work mightily in and through them, that everyone would pay strict attention to the passages and principles that we'll be noting here this evening in your word. Give grace to the communicator so that he might impart 
your full counsel to your people this evening in a fashion that would be pleasing and honoring to you and your son and also minister to your people. So, Father, we pray for this class and these things in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this evening we're going to study Romans 15, verse 6. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul presents to us the purpose for Paul's, his spirit-inspired desire in Romans 15, 5, that the spirit would cause the Roman believers to continue making it their habit of thinking the same with one another according to the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we've seen at, uh, at this particular point in the epistle, it's part of this discussion that Paul had regarding the weak and the strong in Rome, which began in Romans 14.1. The weak and the strong were both Christians, of course, born again and saved. They were primarily, the weak were primarily Jewish believers, though there were some Gentile believers. And then the, the strong were primarily Gentiles, though there were uh, many that were also Jewish, like Paul. Now, the, the weak were weak because they were easily influenced by the strong in their conduct and what the strong did. And uh, they didn't have strong convictions. And uh, the issues that Paul brought up to us in Romans 14 were about the dietary regulations in the law and the, uh, the observance of certain days like the, the Jewish Sabbath. Those things were given to the nation of Israel. And uh, those things were given to the nation of Israel. And funny, my brother had a question about that today. But uh, he, God gave those things to Israel as part of the ceremonial aspect of the Mosaic law. And those things were distinguishing marks for the nation of Israel, just like circumcision was. It was to distinguish Israel from the heathen nations that they would be in the, living in the midst of. And Israel, remember, was designed to uh, wor- uh, uh, reveal to the world the true and living God, Jesus Christ. He was known as Yahweh in the Old Testament, Jehovah Elohim. And other names he was called as well. So the Jews were to lead the rest of the world into believing in Jesus Christ as Savior. And of course, most of the time they failed in that. And so we see that now that a new dispensation had begun, remember Jesus Christ had died on the cross, and that, that means that he fulfilled what the law required, perfect obedience. Because the Jews and the Gentiles couldn't keep the law perfectly, we stood condemned before a holy God who demands perfection. And so what we see is Christ came and he fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law with his perfect obedience. He took the penalty for our disobedience, which was uh, spiritual death. And also, when we believed in Jesus Christ, at the moment that, that moment we believed in Christ, the Holy Spirit, it's called the baptism in the Spirit in Scripture, placed us in union with Christ so that now we're dead to the sin nature, dead to the cosmic system of Satan, and dead to the law because we're identified with Jesus Christ in his spiritual and physical deaths on the cross, as well as his resurrection and session at the right hand of the Father. Positionally, that means he views us that way as being married to his son, Jesus Christ. And he doesn't look at us according to our sins and transgressions. So we see that the the weak believer didn't really fully comprehend that fact that Christ is the substance of those things in the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of those things and that they're dead to the law, including the ceremonial aspect of the law with its dietary regulations and its observance of certain days like the Sabbath. Those strong, on the other hand, were convinced through the Lord Jesus Christ's teaching that they could eat all foods and that every day was alike. And they were convinced through the apostles' teaching that every day was alike and that you could eat all foods and that they were not under the law like Israel was. And they got this conviction from believing what the Holy Spirit said to them through the teaching of the Lord and the apostles. Now those weak on the other hand, because they were primarily Jewish, they had a hard time disengaging from the Mosaic law because they were raised in it. Just like if somebody was a Catholic, they would have a hard time breaking away from Catholicism if they decided to go to a non-denominational church. When Lent rolled around, they would get kind of feel funny that they were eating meat on Friday. And they might even think that they're sinning in their own mind. So we see the weaker like that. How, so what the strong hat were told to do is that they were to operate in love and not do anything that would tempt the weaker believer to follow, try to live by their convictions. The strong said, I could eat all foods. The weak don't have that conviction. So the strong were told by Paul, operate in love. Deny yourself that freedom in Christ to eat all foods for the sake of your weaker brother. And that would maintain unity 
in the Roman church, as we've seen in Romans 1, 8, Romans 15, 14, and 15. And also when we get to Romans 16, 19, the Roman believers were an exemplary church. Everything that they did, that Paul spoke about in the main argument of this epistle, they were doing. And he actually says that. He, implied, uh, he commends them, and he wouldn't commend them for their obedience if they were not already doing the things that he told them in the epistle. He actually was teaching them these things in the Roman epistle to remind them. The implication was they were already taught these things. So they were quite a church and they had some pretty good pastors over there that were teaching them all the things that they were taught in the book of Romans. So we see that Paul in Romans 15, he uses the example of Christ in the first four verses. He uses the example of Christ to encourage the stronger believer to operate in love toward the weak so that unity would be maintained. So now we get into verses 5 and 6, where Paul starts talking about thinking the same. He wants, through the Holy Spirit, he wants them to obey what the Holy Spirit says through the teaching of the Word of God, which is, if we could sum it up, love one another as Christ has loved all of us. So if we love one another, that's the message of the Spirit, that's what the Scriptures could be summed up as, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So if we do that, then we can glorify God with one voice. But as we saw last evening, in verse 5, it all starts with us thinking. And we can, as, and we had brought it up last evening, and I'm going to bring it up again. A lot of churches put on these this uh, show of unity, yet there's mental attitude sins in people, in, in, in the souls of people, even in churches today. Why? Because they don't think the word, what the Word of God says because they're not being taught it, or if they're being taught it, they're not applying it. So we can, if we don't watch out, we can be involved in hypocrisy, putting on, putting on airs, putting on a mask as if we're something that we're not. See, it all starts with the thinking in your soul, and that's God sees that. And we are told here in Romans 15, 5, just like the Roman believers were, that we were to be unified in our thinking. And that Paul desired, and he actually expressed this to the Father in prayer, that the Holy Spirit, would, who produces perseverance and encouragement, would cause them all to be of the same mind according with one another, according to the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we saw last evening... The Lord Jesus Christ teaching, the Holy Spirit speaks to us through the Lord Jesus Christ teaching, and that's the truth, that's the same way with the uh, Old Testament, as we saw in Romans 15, 4 on Sunday, and that's true of the New Testament writings, which have for us the record of the Lord Jesus Christ teaching and the apostles, which is the cornerstone of the church, their teaching. So it all stems down to, people wonder why you emphasize the teaching of the Word of God in this ministry, because that's what the early church did. Acts chapter 2, Jesus, actually it says in the Gospels that Jesus taught every day in the temple. Every day. Some people think that we're fanatic because we meet four times a week. If I could do five, I would do it. So we see that the apostles, Paul, taught daily when he could, when he wasn't traveling. He'd be, he probably taught when he was traveling too. So he taught all the time. Acts chapter 2, the early church, the early church right after the day of Pentecost when 3,000 souls were added to their number, the disciples' number, we see that they were what? There were four daily disciplines of the early church. Taking in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread with one another and corporate prayer. We Actually, we have a corporate prayer at right after class this evening. That's what they were involved in. So everything pivots off the teaching including something that the Lord Jesus Christ prayed for in his upper room discourse that we studied in our study of prayer that's in the book on prayer. In John 17, the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the last things he said to his people, his disciples, before he went to the cross, was that he prayed in front of them to the Father that there would be unity in the church. And we have unity. We have unity in a positional sense through the baptism of the Spirit. The minute we believed in Christ... We were united to Christ, so we have God has done that, but we're also going to be permanently united with Christ in a resurrection body in the future. That unity in the church will be experienced permanently when we all get our resurrection bodies at the rapture. But in the duration, in the meantime, we need to experience that unity, and we can only do it when we obey what the Spirit is telling us through the teaching of the Word of God. So this evening, we're going to study Romans 15, verse 6, and Paul's going to present to us the purpose for his... Is spirit-inspired desire in Romans 15, 5, that the Spirit would cause the Roman believers to continue making it their habit of thinking the same with one another according to the teaching of Christ Jesus. Now look at Romans 15, 5. 
Now may the God, as we saw, that's the Holy Spirit last evening. He's the one there because this is not a prayer and all prayer is supposed to be directed to the Father according to what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 11. So it's not the, it's not the Father here. It's actually the Holy Spirit. And we know that for a couple of things. Romans 15.4, what does it say in Romans 15.4? It says that encouragement and perseverance comes from the scriptures. Look at Romans 15.4. It says, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, in the Greek it means produced by the scriptures, we might have hope, or in other words, confidence. Also compare that with 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, which teaches that the scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is in view here based upon those two passages. So may, and there's more, but I don't have time to do it. We already studied it last evening. So may the Holy Spirit, this is not a prayer, it's a desire of Paul, a desire that he expressed to the Father in prayer, no, no, uh, no doubt. So now may God, the Holy Spirit, who gives perseverance and encouragement, cause you or grant you to be of the same mind. Don't miss that. It talks about thinking, of course. Same mind with one another, according to how? Christ Jesus. What is the one tangible means that God has given us that the Holy Spirit inspired and uses and helps us understand to produce unity experientially in the church so that we can have a unified thinking in the church? The Word of God, the Bible. So when he says according to Christ Jesus, he's talking about the teaching of Christ Jesus because you can't have unity of thought without the teaching of Jesus Christ. All right? His example doesn't produce unity of thought. It, not, not in an experiential sense. His person, no. His will, no. It's his teaching that the Holy Spirit uses to produce that unity in the church. That's why, one of the reasons why, the main reason why we emphasize the teaching of the Word of God. So that's very important we see that. And then he says, uh, after he says, according to Christ Jesus, so, and here's the purpose, so that with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now with one accord there is the word omothematone. Omothematone is used of the Roman believers. Omothematone is used of the Roman believers Try to say that real quick. And it's modifying the word that's translated may glorify, and it means unanimously here. When he says with one accord, you could translate it with the adverb unanimously. And it's used there of the Roman believers uh, unanimously unanimously glorifying the Father. What does the the English word unanimously mean? It denotes being of one mind. And if you look it up in the, in the uh, English dictionary, Webster's, that the word here means unanimously here is indicated by the context because Paul in Romans 15, 5 uh, tells us his spirit-inspired desire was that the Holy Spirit caused the Roman believers as a corporate unit to continue making it the habit of thinking the same with one another according to the teaching of Christ Jesus, which we just set, saw. So he's talking about unity of thought. So therefore, unity of thought among believers is based upon the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, which could be summarized as loving God with one's entire being and loving each other as he has loved all men and all believe and all believers. Hold your place. Look at Ephesians. Look at Ephesians chapter four. Hold your place. Look at Ephesians chapter four, verse eleven. We have a lot of passages to cover here this evening, so get on your horse. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he, in, that, in context, if you look at the first ten verses of the chapter, speaking of Jesus Christ, he gave some as apostles some as prophets and some as evangelists, and some as pastor, not two different people, pastor and teachers, it's pastor, hyphen teachers, or you could translate it teaching pastors. Why? Why did he give these four great communication gifts? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now listen to what he says. Until we all attain... Now what are all those gifts doing? They communicate, they're called communication gifts. They communicate the word of God. The apostles, their gift was to communicate the word of God. Prophets, they communicated the word of God. The evangelists communicated the word of God to the unsaved. Pastor teaches, we communicate the word of God to the body of Christ so that they can grow up spiritually. 
So he says in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, in a spiritual sense, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the Christian faith. Unity. And of the knowledge of the Son of God. How can you gain knowledge of the Son of God? By sitting in the cornfield and contemplating infinity? No. The Word of God. This is the mind of Christ, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 2.16 last evening. This is the mind of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the written Word of God, the mind and thinking of Christ, and this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, according to 2 Peter 1.20 and 21. But notice he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, we're to grow up to spiritual maturity, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result of this, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Your faith can up, get upset if you're not build, getting strong in the word of God and taking it in on a daily basis. Now, I'm not just talking, I'm talking every day, sanctified time, sanctified time, you should have set aside some time every day to pray and study the word of God for your own private study. And then you also are part of a local assembly that you're responsible to, to attend as well to, for fellowship and to grow as a corporate unit and hear the word of God. So we see there that we, we are, if we are not into the word of God, we can be very easily uh, uh, dis- upset and our faith disturbed by what people out in the world say. Like, for instance, my brother Christopher. He comes in, he, he, I know it probably bothered him because Somebody was make, uh, somebody was saying something about, I don't know who it was, was quoting a, the Bible verse that homosexuality is an abomination. And then somebody who was obviously against the Bible started uh, taking passages from Leviticus where that is found. And he took the, the book of Leviticus and distorted what the Bible says in Leviticus without realizing that Leviticus was given to Israel and not to the heathen nations. So we see that the, the, he was upset by, was, I think, was what being said by this person. So I, I gave him some information and to, to, to calm him down and to settle, settle him down a bit. But you've got to be in the Word of God. You've got to be, if you're not in the Word of God, you're going to be open for a satanic attack and your faith will be upset. You'll be confused many times and you'll be worried and anxious and you'll have doubts. And that's what the, that's what the devil did to the woman in the Garden of Eden, didn't he? He got her to doubt what? God's word. What God said to them. That's the devil's game plan, is to get you away from hearing the word of God. Then look at verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him, who is the head, even Christ. Spiritual maturity. We're to become like Christ. But we can't do that if we don't think like Christ. Because you can't act and speak like Christ unless you think like Christ. People saying, I can't. You're talking about acting like Jesus Christ? God said we can do it. He would never tell us to do it, to grow up to be like Christ, if he didn't give us the capacity to do so. Why do you think he gave us the Holy Spirit? Romans 8.11 says that. 1 Corinthians 3.16. 1 Corinthians 6.19. He indwells us for a reason. So we can understand the word of God, so that we can have the capacity to do the will of God and to obey what the word of God says. That's what we studied in Romans chapter 8 too. Then he says, from whom, in verse 16, the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, the word of God, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So there we have him talking about unity, and it's based upon what the communication gifts provide, which is the word of God, and it's based upon understanding the Son of God, gaining in the Son of God knowledge of who he is, Knowledge of how he lived and how he operates toward men, which is love. And so we learn how to love like God loves from the scriptures, the mind and thinking of Christ. Now go back to Romans chapter 15, verse 5, please. Romans 15, verse 5. So we see... That this unity of thought that Paul is calling us to, if you look at Romans 15, 5, now may God, the Holy Spirit, who gives, we could say, produces perseverance and encouragement in us, grant you or cause you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, his teaching. Why? What's the purpose of this? What's the purpose of this unity of thought? So that with one accord, unanimously, 
you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So unity of thought among believers is based upon the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, which could be summarized as loving God with one's entire being and loving each other as he has loved all men and all believers. Now, this unity of thought is expressed verbally as well, as we see with the phrase, with one voice. So, the first step to praising God, glorifying God, means praising him with song or words, or whatever that is, it starts with our thinking. It starts with our thinking. So, we can't, you know, let's put it this way. In a relationship, when you're in marriage, you don't know any, if you don't know the other person, you're mar- you, let's say you have a relationship with somebody, a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, you, you, you want, if the guy doesn't know anything about how you feel and how you think, and the girl doesn't know anything about the, how the guy thinks and how he feels and relate, expresses himself and she expresses herself, if they don't relate, relate, uh, relate their souls to each other, you're gonna have a tough marriage. So, in the same way in the spiritual realm, Christians who don't take in the word of God are basically saying, I don't want to hear what you have to say, Jesus. I don't want to have to listen to what you have to say. Well, that would be like you sitting down with your loved one and they don't want to hear what you have to say. And the Bible, as you've heard me say many times, is God's love letters to the church. It's the Lord's love letters to the church. So this unity of, uh, unity of thought is expressed verbally. And that's, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, or the filling of the Spirit has to do, when it says be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, that has to do with your thinking. Walking by the Spirit, your conduct. The two sides of the same coin. However, you can't walk by the Spirit unless you're filled with the Spirit, because the filling of the Spirit deals with your thinking. And they bear certain results. They bear glorifying God. It, it results in singing. In fact, uh, hold your place again. Look at Ephesians. I told you we'd be all over the place here. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verse 18. Did I say, what did I say? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. <clears throat> you were just there. should have had you stay there too. But then your fingers, you run out of fingers. Look at Ephesians 5, 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Stupidity is what it means. Nonsensical behavior. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not talking like a, a filling up this thing here. It has nothing to do with it. it talks, the word pleroo, filled, is talking about, it's, it's metaphorical, it's figurative. It mean, it's talking about being influenced by the Holy Spirit, being consumed by, by your thought process, being saturated with the teaching of the Holy Spirit, which is found in the Word of God. That's why I say the filling of the Spirit and letting the Word of Christ richly dwell in your soul are the same thing because they bear pretty much the same results. And plus, the Word of God is inspired by the Spirit. Look at it says in Ephesians 5.18 in the second half, the, the adversative clause, but be filled with the Spirit. Now look what he says after this. If you're filled with the Spirit, which is Paul's asking the Roman believers to be, all of you be filled with the Spirit. I want the Holy Spirit to, to be, uh, cause you to think the same. Look at the results. Speaking to one another in psalms, glorifying God with one voice, and hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Notice singing and speaking to one another, that's what he means by glorifying God with one voice. Always, verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Now, go to Colossians. You got Philippians right after Ephesians. Go to Colossians. That's right after Philippians. Look at Colossians 3.16. And notice, after he says, let the word of Christ richly dwell in your soul, he says pretty much the same things that he said after he said, be filled with the Spirit. Look at Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in, within you. Where? In your stomach? No, in your head, obviously. In your soul. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, your soul. And then look what it says. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Sounds like just what he said in Ephesians. There's a good reason, because he's emphasizing in Colossians the ministry of the word, the importance of the word of God to have fellowship. In Ephesians, he's mentioning the Spirit's ministry. But they go together because the Spirit inspired the Scriptures. And he makes them come alive and real and understandable to us. That's his job for us that he's doing right now. So don't miss that. To be filled with the Spirit is to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in your soul and vice versa because they bear the same results. And 
the Spirit inspired the Scriptures according to 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Now go back to Romans 15, 5. Romans 15, 5, hopefully you held there. Now may, that's the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, who gives perseverance and encouragement, grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, his teaching, so that with one accord, here's the reason why, so that with one accord unanimously, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul mentions thinking first, if you notice, before verbally glorifying God to teach that that thought precedes word and action. You are what you think. Proverbs 23, 7 says that. You are what you think. If you're, if you're, I'll tell you right now, uh, unless, it's a, unless it's a physiological problem that you have, most problems, and I've talked to doctors about this, okay? Most pro- in fact, the Mayo Clinic is, is, uh, actually put something out back in the late 80s on this. That most problems physically that people have when they come in the Mayo Clinic were psychosomatic related. A lot of the, your mind can do real bad things to your body if you continue to think terrible thoughts. Depression, and I've said that sometimes it's a chemical problem, but a lot of times it's not. A lot of times it's what you're thinking. And the world has got satanic viewpoint. This is the devil's world, the Bible says. Just look at the way the injustice in the world, child abuse, don't blame it on God. There's a devil. And he is controlling this world. He manipulates this world through fear of death. He, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, chapter, chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, he deceives the entire world, 1 John 5, 19, Revelation 12, 10. Day and night, he attacks the body of Christ. And he, at, at, in, in heaven, he accuses us before the throne of God. He's the enemy of the church, Ephesians 6, 12. He would like, he can't indwell a believer. Because the Trinity indwells the believer. He wouldn't want to go there. But the, de- the enemy, the kingdom of darkness, can influence the way we think. He can influence the way he think, where we think. And that means if you're not going to take in truth, he's got some other stuff, good stuff for you that he calls good stuff. All that baloney, that humanistic philosophy. Just look at the way the, this country has gone. The morals and standards of this country have gone in the gut, gutter, in the last 50, 60, 100 years, and it's all due, it's all directly related to our attitude toward the Bible. And if you reject the word of God, this country was founded on Judeo-Christian ethics, biblical principles, Harvard University, this is a fact, was started by Harvard University, the liberal bastion right now, the think tank of the liberals. Harvard University was started it was, all, it was a theological seminary. It was started by a guy who wanted to teach men the word of God and train them in the original languages. It was Christian-based. But we've drifted away from that, and what happened? Crime's gone up. Immorality's gone up. Divorce. Marriage has fallen apart. Kid, kid, broken homes. And it's all due to the fact that we reject the word of God. So it's the way we think is very important. And Paul mentions thinking here first. Paul mentions thinking first here in Romans 15, 5 and 6 before verbally glorifying God to teach the, that thought precedes word and action. Now listen to me carefully. If the, think, if the thinking of believers is in agreement with the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ as it's found in the Bible, then they will be able to glorify God with their words and actions. However, if their thinking is not in agreement with the teaching of the Lord Jesus, then they will not be able to glorify God with their words and actions, even if they do attempt to glorify Him with their words and actions. Why? Because a person's thought is seen only by God, and men can deceive with their words and actions. Uh, I, was, I was talking to the McKinney's yesterday. They went to a wedding somewhere in Missouri, and they were singing, I don't know where they were, but they were singing some hymns, Christian hymns, and they said they sang them like a dirge. There was no joy, and joy is one of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Why is that? They're singing, but there's nothing of content of soul. There's no filling of the Spirit. They don't know how to be filled with the Spirit, and I guarantee you they're not being taught the Bible. Churches have, what, five minutes of teaching in a lot of these places? Go to Cedar Rapids sometime. Don't go here sometime. Go sit in one of those churches, and you see most churches, not all of them, but most of them, they will not, they'd never do an hour, and they never do four days a week. Yet that is exactly what the church needs. Now, I'm not saying that we're the greatest church, we're not perfect, 
However, the Bible does say you're to emphasize the teaching of the word of God. That is absolutely essential for the church. Jesus said, if you love me, Peter, feed my lambs. All right? Not a potluck dinner. You feed them the word of God. That's how you know your pastor loves you. And most pastors today in America and around the world, they do not love their congregations. It's manifested by the fact that they will not feed them and they're, they're entertainers, a lot of them, and they want to just tickle people's ears. That's exactly what Paul warned would happen in the last days, Second Timothy chapter 4, 1 through 3. And these pastors are full of baloney. And these churches are involved in hypocrisy. And it, it's the same thing here. If I walk up here and I start singing and I'm out of fellowship with God, my song, my music is, is garbage to God. Shut it off, Bill. You might as well not even sing because I'm not accepting it as worship from me. That's why I make sure that I'm filled with the Spirit while I'm singing that song. Because I, I, don't want, it to, I want it to be acceptable to God, but if my mind is in the gutter or if I have bitterness or I'm angry at somebody and I'm out of fellowship because of it, God's not going to accept our worship. Christians are involved in hypocrisy. If they attempt to glorify God with their words and actions and yet are not thinking like Christ by bringing their thoughts into obedience to the Spirit who speaks to the believer through the teaching of the Word of God. Uh, look at second, hold your place. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You got Romans, 1 Corinthians, then 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse 1, please. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Now, I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, meaning in our human bodies, we do not war according to the flesh, human power. For the weapons of our warfare, the Christian's warfare, are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking what? Every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The weapons of our warfare, people, Ephesians, we, taught, we saw that in chapter 6. The word of God, the sword of the spirit, is our offensive weapon and so is prayer. In fact, prayer and the word of God go together because when you pray according to the will of God, you're praying back to God, the Father, his word. And so the full armor of God is defensive measures. That's your union with Christ. So notice there, bringing thoughts into obedience to Christ. Paul was very concerned about the thought process of the churches in the Roman Empire. Now go back to Romans 15, verse 5 again, please. Romans 15, verse 5. Now may God, the God, who gives perseverance and encouragement, grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord, unanimously, you may with one voice, now you can, he's verbal, said to verbalize, glorifying God with a voice, but you first got to think right, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You may glorify is the present active subjunctive form of the word, of the word, the Greek word, Thoxazo. Thoxazo means to glorify in the sense of worshiping him. A lot of people, I want to glorify God. Sometimes in the Bible, and they don't even know what it means. That's my job to tell you what it means. Glorify sometimes means manifest the character and nature of Christ in your life. How do you do that? Love. Operate in love. Manifest the love of God in the forgiving the unlovely. Operating in love to your fellow believer and your fellow man. Loving like Christ did through the power of the Spirit. That's manifesting the character and nature of God. That is how you glorify God. There's also another way the scriptures teach, which is what? To praise him with your words, your, your speech, and your song. It has to do with verbalizing your praise and worship of God. So this word here, glorify, is referring to uh, worshiping God 
Since Paul is emphasizing the Roman believers thinking the same according to the teaching of Christ and verbalizing this unity of thought. Now, he is not speaking of the Roman believers glorifying the Father in the sense of manifesting his character and nature, as I mentioned before, i.e. His love, uh, his love with each other. Though in Romans 14, verses 13, all the way to Romans 15, 4, he emphasized in that passage with a strong their need to operate in divine love toward the weak. Rather, here in verse 6, Paul is speaking of the Roman believers glorifying the Father in the sense of, in the sense of uh, worshiping him since he's speaking in the context of the Roman believers being unified in thought by conforming their thinking to the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and worshiping, uh, and worship begins with thinking. Hold your place. I'm going to keep you in Romans, though. Look at Romans chapter 12. Hopefully this, if it, a lot of, I know some of you do know it, but if you don't, this is, might be an eye-opener because it was for me when I first heard it. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, the merciful acts of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Look what he says now. Which is acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. God wants you to use the body he gave you, not to sin in it, but to manifest his love in our lives, in our body, to operate in love. Then look what he says. And don't be conformed to the world. That means the way the world's thinking, the world system that's anti-Christ, anti-Bible, and seeks to seduce the church away from its relationship with the Lord. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may demonstrate what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, don't miss this. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, arrogance, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Now go back to Romans chapter 5, 15, verse 5. Romans 15, 5. So this worship of the Father, through unity of thought, manifests itself verbally, as Paul says with the phrase, with one voice. And it will manifest itself in conduct, i.e., our words and our actions. Now the present tense of this verb, thoxazo, if you look at Romans 15, 5. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify. The word there in the Greek is doxazo. It talks, it's in the present tense and that means something here. To the Roman believers, it definitely does and it's going to teach us something by, uh, by way of implication. The present tense of this verb is what we call a customary present and that indicates that the Roman believers were not to begin to do this but they were to continue doing this Continue making it their habit of glorifying the Father in the sense of worshiping Him. Now, as I mentioned so many times in the last couple of months, Paul's statements in Romans 15, verses 14 and 15, and also Romans 16, 19, indicate that the Romans were in fact already doing this. Thus, he was simply reminding them here to continue doing so. I'm, I'm convinced that you're full of goodness, Romans 15, 14, full of knowledge and able to admonish with one another. And then he says in verse 15 of chapter 15, I said these things in this epistle to remind you. So he's commending them for already doing these things. Thus, when he says glorify God with one voice, he's just saying, keep doing it because you're already doing it. I know you are. How did Paul know that? Because he never visited them yet. He wanted to go there. Well, he, if you look at Romans 16, 1 through 13, he sends greetings from, to a lot of people. He was getting reports from them. He knew a whole bunch of people in Rome. And so he was just sending, when he, at the end of the epistle, he sends along his greetings, even to family members. So, we see that he says with one voice here. If you look at, uh, he says, I won't, he wants you in verse 6, so that with one accord, Romans 15, 6, so that with one accord you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. With one voice is another prepositional phrase. In the Greek, what they could do, if you looked at a Greek sentence, like the New Testament, in English, it would look like a run-on sentence. What the Greeks would do is they would, like Paul, he would pile on prepositional phrases. That makes for bad English, and it makes for tough translations, too, in the English. But here he piles on another prepositional phrase. We have the preposition n, and then with it we have the adjective is, which is translated one, which speaks of unity. 
And then we have the noun in the dative form, which is stoma, which is translated voice. Now, the noun stoma, translated voice in your Bibles, is used in relation to the Roman believers as a corporate unit glorifying the Father with their voices, whether through singing or speaking. Now, the word is modified by the adjective is here, which is translated one, which pertains, this word translated one in your Bibles, pertains to that which is united as one and contrasts with being divided. And it's emphasizing the concept of unity here and that Paul wants the Roman believers to be united with each other and worshiping the Father. This is what he's saying. Now, the preposition N functions as a marker of means and the noun stoma, voice, functions as a date of, of instrumental of means. What does that mean to us? It indicates that the voices of the Roman believers were to be the instruments that they employed to glorify the Father. We're not to use our mouth and our voices to express our bitterness toward another believer or to rail at another believer or gossip about somebody. We're to use our voices to glorify God. Our speech, as it says in the epistles, is to be seasoned with grace. And you can only get that if you're filled with the Spirit. Having the word of Christ richly dwell in your soul. That's when you're thinking like Christ. Because when you're thinking like Christ, then you're going to start speaking like Christ and you're going to start acting like Christ. And let me tell you something, this doesn't happen overnight. It's a long process because old habits of the sin nature are hard to break. And we can only break them through the power of the Spirit by appropriating by faith our position in Christ, crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with Christ. Growing up spiritually, it takes a while to happen. And it doesn't happen in one year, two years, or ten years, many times. It takes a long time. It's a long process. Now, when he says, the God, so that you may glorify with one voice, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God is referring, of course, to the Father here, I know that because in the original there's a, an article, which is the in the English, is, the is in the English is an article. In the Greek, when you had the article before this noun, theos, tra- uh, translated God, it signified, unless the context said otherwise, it usually signified the Father. We know it's talking to the Father here because he says it right there. Partera is the word, the Hebrew word, or the Greek word. He, he says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have a Trinity verse going on here in Romans 15, 5 and 6. The Holy Spirit's mentioned in, the, in verse 5, the Son in verse 6, and the Father is also mentioned in verse 6. Now, the noun theos is used here in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ, indicating to the reader that the Father is the God of Jesus Christ. That's confirmed by Matthew 27, 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark 15, 34, Ephesians 1, 17. And this word would emphasize the humanity of Christ and that he is the perfect revelation of the Father. Now, the word Father is the word patera in the, in the Greek. It refers to the Father. It's used in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, don't miss this. I almost blew right by this. That's why I take my time. When he uses the Father here and he uses God, they express a relationship to Jesus Christ. It's telling you something about Jesus Christ. Look at the verse. He says in verse 6, So that with one accord you may with, with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's telling us something about the relationship that Jesus Christ has with his Father in respect to his human nature and his divine nature. The noun theos, the God, emphasizes to us that the Father is Jesus Christ God, whereas Father, uh, Patera, emphasizes that Jesus Christ shares the same nature as the Father, thus emphasizes his deity. People say, Jesus never said he was God. Why do you think they crucified him? Why do you think the Jews, the high priest tore his robes? He said he was God. He asked them, are you the son of God? Yeah, I am. (laughs) He said it over and over again. I and the Father are one. Jehovah Witnesses say that means one in purpose. No, it means one in divine nature. And when he called God his father, he was saying, I have the same nature as my father. It's like me saying Bill Wenstrom Sr. is my father. That means I have the same nature and relationship to him. I'm in the same family. Jesus comes out and says that God is his father. He's saying that God is in my family. I have the same nature as him. So Jesus, in him, all the fullness of deity dwells. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Jesus is God. And how do we know that? He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. That demonstrated it. 
Now, together, these two words, God and Father, when used in relation to Jesus Christ, emphasize his hypostatic union. That means he is undiminished deity and true sinless humanity in one person forever. Or in other words, he's 100% God and he's 100% a human being. Now, he has a human nature. However, he's one person. He's a person, the second member of the Trinity, who has two natures. He has a divine nature and he has a human nature. And that is what we call the hypostatic union. Now, how does that happen? How does that work together? I have no idea. I'm telling you what the Word of God says. How does that work? I don't, I don't know. I'm not Jesus. I couldn't tell you. But what he does tell us in the Scriptures is a lot, is that he is God and he is man. He became a human being 2,000 years ago at Bethlehem to save us from our sins and to bring us to God, back to fellowship with God, to be the, the uh, mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2.5. He took the hand of God and the hand of man in himself and he joined us to God. Now when he says of our Lord, that's the personal pronoun ego, translated our, and then we have the word kyrios, which actually talks about the deity of our Lord. This word kyrios indicates the following. One, it indicates that Jesus of Nazareth is equal with the Father and the Spirit. Number two, it also emphasizes his joint rulership with the Father over the entire cosmos. Three, it emphasizes his highest ranking position as chief administrator in the divine government. We're finding that out in our study of the millennial reign. Number four, it emphasizes his absolute sovereignty, sovereign authority, as ruler over all creature, all, all creatures and all of creation. Satan is subordinate to him. If you read the book of Job, Satan can do nothing without Jesus Christ saying okay and the Father. If they, can't, they can't touch us unless the Lord permits it. Satan is under Christ's authority. He's been defeated by Christ. He is a defeated foe, and he wouldn't want you to know that. Number five, this word Lord emphasizes that Jesus Christ, it emphasizes his strategic victory at that cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. At the cross, he defeated Satan, and he defeated his kingdom of darkness, and the angelic conflict, and one day, at the second advent of Christ, he will establish his millennial reign, and the prayer, his prayer, the Jesus prayer to the Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, will come to pass. So people say, why isn't Jesus coming? Why is he waiting so long? Yeah, he's he told 2,000 years ago. You guys are still waiting for the rapture. You want to know why? Read 2 Peter 3, 9. He is patient, not willing for any to perish. So next time your unbelieving friends, I said that to an unbeliever one time, ah, oh, that Jesus, he said he's going to come. I said, you know why? You know why he's waiting so long? It's because he doesn't want to toss you into the lake of fire, you knucklehead. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think he's waiting for? He's waiting for you to come to a city. He's, he's being gracious to you. That's why he's delaying. If he didn't delay, if he didn't delay his coming, none of us would have got saved. <laughs> Unbelievable. Now in his deity, we're almost near the end here, Jesus Christ is Lord. In his deity, he is Lord. The Holy Spirit is as well, 2 Corinthians 3.17. And of course, the Father is Lord. However, in his human nature, Jesus received this title. It says that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 11. He received this title, as we saw in that passage, as a result of his obedience to the Father's will and going to the cross and suffering a spiritual and physical death in our place for every member of the human race, in fact past, present, and future. He did it for everybody. Now, why did he have to receive it in his human nature if he already has it in, in his deity? Remember in our study of Genesis, Psalm chapter 8? What was the Father's plan from eternity past? That man would rule over the works of God's hands. Adam and the woman were created in the image of God, and that's in their souls. God doesn't have a physical body, although Jesus Christ added to his deity a human nature, or to his person a human nature. <laughs> So we, we, see that, we see that Jesus Christ, he had to become Lord in his humanity because Adam fell in the woman and Satan usurped the authority of Adam. Christ won back the authority of the earth for mankind with his physical and spiritual deaths. So we saw in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer talks about that. But we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. So God wanted man 
to rule over the creation. But he couldn't do that with the fall of Adam and the woman. So what he did is he has Christ and his church to take over for what Adam and his wife lost. Christ got back. And we are his body, bride, and body of Christ and the future bride of Christ. And we will reign with Christ. This is what the scripture teaches. Jesus, when it says in Romans uh, 15, uh, 6, he says, So that with one accord you may with one voice glorify thee, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus there refers to his human nature. And then uh, Christ, that refers to his saviorhood. Each word means something. Lord talks about his deity, as, and the other things too, as I mentioned before, his sovereign authority. Jesus emphasizes his humanity and that he identifies with us. Christ talks about his saviorhood. Christ is a technical word designating that the human nature of Jesus Christ in hypostatic union is the promised savior of mankind who's unique as the incarnate son of God and he was totally, and still is, totally and completely guided and empowered by the Holy Spirit as the servant of the Father. Now let me give you my translation on the board and we'll close and then we'll have our prayer meeting in a couple of minutes. He says, Now may the God on the board, now may God the Holy Spirit, who produces perseverance as well as encouragement, cause all of you for your benefit to continue making it your habit of thinking the same with one another, according to the teaching of Christ who is Jesus, in order that unanimously, with one voice, all of you may continue making it a habit of glorifying the God and Father of our Lord, namely Jesus, who is the Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for those here this evening, and we pray that the Holy Spirit would help us understand and apply the things that we've learned, encourage us, instruct us in righteous, rebuke righteousness, rebuke us if necessary, and we just praise you, Father, for who and what you are and what you've done for us through both the Spirit and the Son, and are doing for us now and will do for us in the future. And we pray, Father, you you would also give us traveling mercies on the way home for those in the chapel. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would empower the prayer meeting after and the fellowship after. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.